This is the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman. Brought to you by the Academy of Dental CPAs. Whether it's taxes, investing, or planning wisely, Art is your guide to make your dental practice as profitable as possible. Here's your host, Dental CPA, Art Wiederman. And hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Dental Finance with Art Wiederman CPA. That would be me. I am Art Wiederman. I am a dental-specific CPA. I've been practicing uh, public accounting in the dental profession for uh, almost 36 years now. I guess now that we're into 2020, we're getting towards 36, but over 35, I guess under 36 and over 35. So not exactly either one, which is totally irrelevant, but... um, I've been I've been a dental CPA for a long time, ladies and gentlemen, and um, I'm very proud of our podcast. Again, we're growing, you know, by leaps and bounds. We're getting lots of great comments about the work that we're doing and all this stuff. And today's topic is very important for all of you who are not only in practice but who are thinking about going into practice. And today we're talking about how to get a loan from a dental specific lender. Um, uh, that is going to allow you to either buy a practice, expand a practice, buy equipment, uh, refinance a practice, open a new location. What if you want to open multiple locations? Uh, my guest today is uh, Justin Klingshern, who's a vice president at Bank of America Practice Solutions. Uh, very, very experienced gentleman who uh, uh, every day of his career, he's helping dentists, um, you know, meet their dreams and um, works with them. He works specifically in practice acquisitions, but is also well-versed in the other areas uh, of practice finance. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, my friend Roger Williamson on the show, and uh, we talked about home loans. Uh, and there's a little bit of a carryover between what Roger talks about, but what Justin talks about only you know in, in credit and things like that. But you're going to get a completely uh, different take today from Justin. We're going to talk about, you know, how can you set yourself up? What are some mistakes that you don't want to make so that when you're ready to go pull the trigger to buy that practice or you're ready to pull the trigger to build out that new office that you want uh, to build, that, um, uh, you know, the, the, the people at the banks, Bank of America, other banks can make sure that they make you the loan. So we'll get to Justin in a second. I do want to give you some information. Um my phone number in Tustin and um, giving out a new phone number is uh, 714-505-9000. That's our phone number at uh, HMWC CPAs and Business Advisors. That's where I am a partner at the firm. Um, if you want to get a hold of me uh, on email, I'm at artweederman at gmail.com. Uh, if you are looking uh, for our podcasts, go to our website. Our website's got all the podcasts. Uh, we've been doing this for a little over a year now. I think we're into the 60s now is the number of podcasts we have. Um, go to www.hmwccpa.com. Go to the um, resources tab and then go to the podcast link. And all the podcasts, including the one that we're going to record right now with Justin, uh, will be there and Justin's information will be there to get a hold of him. Plus, we'll let him uh, give this out. So like I say, I've known Justin for a, for a while. Uh, Justin is a really, really sharp uh, individual who has helped uh, our clients buy practices through Bank of America Practice Solutions. And Bank of America Practice Solutions is, uh, uh, to my knowledge, the largest uh, um, uh, dental lender uh, in America out there. They um, And I'll let Justin tell you a little bit about that. And every day they're working with doctors and uh, just helping them uh, to get what they need so that they can uh, achieve their goals and dreams, which is part of what we uh, do here on this podcast is help you achieve your goals and dreams. So, Justin Klingshern, welcome to the Art of Dental Finance. Thanks for having me, Art. Well, I appreciate you coming on. And um, uh, as we recorded this uh, uh, podcast, I guess the Super Bowl was yesterday. So did your team win? You know, I, I was happy that Kansas City won. Uh, I, I didn't have a dog in this fight, though. But it was it was good to see Andy Reid get a victory for once yeah. and for all. It, it, but it, I was it, I was happy with it. It's fun. It's one of my favorite days of the year, just because it's such a big mm-hmm. event and a big football game and stuff like that. I've been to one Super Bowl in my life. I went in uh, two thousand one when the Baltimore Ravens beat the New York Giants and. Um, 
Britney Spears did the halftime show. It was really fun. Uh, that was in uh, Tampa, Florida. But uh, if you ever get a chance, ladies and gentlemen, to go to a Super Bowl, it is a uh, uh, it, it's a big event. But uh, we're not talking about the Super Bowl today. So uh, hey, so Justin, uh, you are the vice president of uh, dental finance lending at uh, Bank of America, and uh, you work in the Southern California area, right? Yep, that's right. And 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 specifically, you work with. Um, uh, folks that are buying practices, um, but but you get involved in, in the other parts to some extent, right? Sure. Yeah. My, my focus right now is acquisition lending, meaning if you're looking to buy in or just totally buy out a practice, uh, that that is my specialization. Although throughout my career at Bank of America, we've done project lending, commercial real estate lending, any sort of lending that a dentist would need. That, that's right. So tell me a little bit about your journey. I understand that you are an Ohio State Buckeye. Yeah, that's right. And um, where did you start your career? So I started, um, boy, I, I so I graduated from Ohio State. And while at Ohio State, I had worked for Delta Airlines. Oh, uh, I started on the ramp. Yeah, it's it's and Delta is a great company. Um, the, the flight perks that come with that are, are, are pretty awesome as well. But Started as ramp agent, worked up to operations, then the lead. Uh, then my really my second job, uh, and I had that job right after college for a bit, was at Bank of America. So I worked there in Columbus. That's where our headquartered office is, is a relationship account officer. Uh, so essentially just working as an account manager for the people that, you know, I, I for the position that I now am, I uh, was Promoted, moved to Austin, Texas, worked there for about six and a half years, relocated to Southern California, and that's why we're here today. You like the weather in Southern California, Justin? Yeah, yeah. You, you just can't, you, you can't, you can't beat it. So, so let, let's get started on the discussion. Now, you, you know, you, you're talking to dentists every single day. You've been doing this for a while. Uh, get, give me your take on the health, how, how you see the health of the dental profession how you see your doctors are doing, the ones that are looking to buy practices, the ones that have bought practices. Because you, once you guys make a loan, you don't just like say, okay, goodbye, see you later. I hope you make the payments, right? No, no, no. no. Yeah, we, to answer that point, we, we have essentially a coaching system in place um, to where, you know, for the first two years, you can take advantage, track your metrics against the industry averages. So, so, so we do have that hand if you need it held, but ultimately, you know, we're not playing big brother either. Right. But to answer your first question, as far as the health of the dental industry, I think it depends on how you define that. It's clearly this gives way to the topic of DSOs and how that's impacting business. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Very, yeah, that'll vary by state. But but ultimately, you know, dental spending is still between like one and four percent. I want to say it's the the Health Policy Institute, along with the ADA, come out with an annual publication to where they they put out metrics on the dental industry in general. Uh, dentist wages have gone up. They went down, I believe, in the in like 2000 to 2015, and then slowly they've been going up. Yep. Um, but so is the median household income of the United States in general. So, so the dental industry is healthy. And to speak from our perspective, you know, we had lended more money to dentists in 2019 over and above 2018. So as much as there is this fear alongside the DSO market, um, from our perspective, as far as the industry is concerned, it is alive and well. And gosh, yeah, they're, they're even opening five new dental schools, I believe in 2020. Right. So that was a, I mean, that, that's an indicator of health. Well, I, I think I think that the, the dental industry, in my opinion, is very strong right now. I mean, I'm seeing doctors uh, buying new equipment, expanding their offices, doing different procedures. I mean, uh, you know, if, if you talk to the folks at the different, um, uh, you know, dental equipment uh, vendors out there, the, the, the you know, Shine, Patterson, Benco, uh, you know, all those guys, um, you know, they're they're getting orders for you know digital X-ray, digital scanners, CBCTs. Um, I mean, I was I was talking to one of your one of your cohorts uh, in Southern California, um, Ali, the other day, and and I was asking him. I said, "Are people still building out offices?" He says, "Are they're they're building them out more than I've seen in a while." I mean, 
And I, I had I had a dentist one time. Uh, there's a community here, ladies and gentlemen. If you're not from Southern California, called Irvine. Irvine is is got you know some of the best school districts in the country. It's a it's a it's a fine, wonderful community. And I had a doctor who who called me. He said, Justin. He says, Yeah, there's there's one little section of Irvine that doesn't have a dentist, and I'm going to build over there. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, I'm seeing people expanding, and and obviously, like you say. Um, you know, Bank of America is growing. I mean, if if people were not borrowing money to expand practices and things like that, we we wouldn't be, you know, you guys wouldn't be loaning as much money. And the other thing is, I mean, my goodness, interest rates are as good as they have been in a long time, right? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So they're really, really good. So let me ask you another question. Let's go in a different direction here. So I get this question all the time. And for your purposes, I have a young dentist. They've come out of dental school. Maybe they're single. Maybe they're married. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Do we buy? Does it matter if they buy the house first or if they either go to build the practice or buy a practice? Does that matter right. in your world? So it does and it doesn't. It, I think it boils down to more of a personal decision. Um, and we get asked this question a ton too. It, 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 at the end of the day, when you do buy a house, you will be limited on where you can buy or start up a practice, particularly if you're in a high traffic area. So you buy a house, it's in, you know, in your example, Irvine, and you want to start a practice in, you know, uh, Corona. Right. Uh, for those not listening, those two cities are about 40 miles apart, right? Or, or for instance, you, you buy a house in one area and in 50 miles away, you see the perfect acquisition opportunity. Well, your commute clearly is not favorable. Now, when it comes to financing, it's easier to buy a house, usually as an employee, as a W-2 employee. So with that said, if you're willing to keep your options open and and ultimately uh, buy the practice first, as long as you have about a year's tax returns, typically it's about a year and a half, a lot of home loan doctor folks. So, you know, I think you had somebody on your podcast before who's a mortgage lender. Typically, they can give you a loan after about a year and a half of practice ownership. Yeah. That, so my, that, my suggestion yeah. is just to, to wait, find the practice you want, be flexible in where you can go because opportunities aren't only within a 10 mile radius where your house is. They'll exist all over the place. And it's kind of what, and again, I go back to what Roger talked to me about on the podcast first, is that, yeah, if you buy the practice first, you've got to show one to two years of income to the lender to buy the house. But if you buy the house first, like you said, Justin, you're stuck in the community that you're buying the house in. Now, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that I've preached for years is that you should, and you don't, it's not a must, but I think you should live Work in the community that you live in. I really think that that's really, really important because you get involved in the local community, in your church or your synagogue or your religious organization, in the schools, in in little league, all this kind of stuff. And and so I, I, I like I like that, Justin. That we 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 want to buy the buy the practice, get it squared away, and you know they don't have to own a house and stuff like that uh, to 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 do that. Um, let me let me jump ahead on some of these questions we've been talking about since we're talking about that. One of the concerns I get from a lot of young dentists is, oh, my goodness, I have all this student loan debt. And let's talk about that for a minute. I, I mean, you, know, you you look at the average. I mean, I've, I've been to lots of lectures. I've given lots of lectures. The average student loan debt in the United States from somebody who's graduating is somewhere in the 300 to uh, I'm going to say three to four hundred thousand dollars a year here in California. Mm-hmm. That number is higher. There's no question about it uh, at, at the dental schools. Um, so when you're looking at somebody, I mean, virtually everybody you're dealing with has student loan debt, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So how does that work? In other words, how you know you've got someone who's coming in, they're 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 new, they they've just getting started, and um, we're talking about. Um, you know, someone who could be four or five hundred thousand dollars in debt. How do you look at that? Right. Well, I think um, it's all going to be relative. Uh, for one, GPs will come out uh, with, yeah, like you said, three to four hundred thousand dollars student loan debt. But specialists oftentimes come out with six, seven, yep. even upwards of eight hundred thousand dollars of student loan debt. 
this is a, a newer thing for the bank. And it's a newer thing for, you know, just, just in general, where, where these loan sizes have grown to the point where, you know, again, three to $400,000 is more or less the norm. Um, the biggest takeaway is that it's not necessarily the amount that you owe, but the payment on the amount that the bank would care a little bit more about. Um, so as an example, you owe $400,000 and you're on the income-based repayment plan and you make one hundred dollars or $200,000 a year, your payment will be a percentage of your adjusted gross income, typically 10%. In that case, let's assume your payment would be then $1,200, right? Okay. On $400,000. Now, if you, on the other hand, refinanced on a 10-year loan at $400,000, your payment is closer to $4,500. Now, those payments are clearly dramatically different. One of which, though, will allow you to pay down your loan in about 10 years. The other one, it's, it's nearly infinite. But the reality is that as you apply for a loan, that payment factors into the cash flow. And the cash flow ultimately is what helps determine whether or not you do or don't get a loan. Because at $4,200, $4,500, whatever that payment would be, you did refinance $400,000 on 10 years, will be a cost that's ongoing as you enter into practice ownership, whether or not you start up or buy. And the bank has to take that into account. And the bank has to make sure that you'll be able to make more than that amount just to cover that debt and all of your other debts. So the biggest takeaway here is just that it's not necessarily the amount owed, it's the payment on that amount. So as you apply for financing, I would just keep that as low as possible. So maybe maybe the takeaway from this, Justin, is obviously you know a, a young man or a young woman coming out of school, um, and again, it depends on where you go to work. If you go to work at a private fee-for-service practice, you may not get a four-day-a-week job uh, making you know one hundred and fifty, hundred and eighty, two hundred thousand dollars a year, but mm-hmm. uh, many doctors and and this is real life. Uh, they do go to uh, many of the large group practices who do offer that opportunity. Um, right. And but but the thing is, is ultimately, if they want to do this, using that income based repayment plan keeps your debt down. Then they go ahead and they get the loan from you guys, right? And, you know, once they get the loan and if they say, I don't want to be paying these student loans until I'm 170 years old, um, uh, then they could refinance, right? At some point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's that's our recommendation. Now, to say that the loan amount doesn't matter at all wouldn't be necessarily true. So it it does matter. Right. So it's it matters within reason. So if you go to a really expensive school and you've had both undergraduate and dental school paid for via loans. Uh, In that number creeps up over $500,000. The bank might want to see at that point some other mitigant. So for instance, um, a lot of production or more cash saved in the bank. So another decent takeaway is just that, again, it, 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 does matter. It just doesn't matter as much of the, as the payment. But to your point, yes, keep the payment low, refinance later is at least my suggestion. All right, so let, let's, you brought up an interesting point about, about production. So uh, we have a young dentist. They've been working three to seven years, maybe. That's what we usually see in you know different offices, one office. And they finally decide that they want to go out and uh, they want to fly, they want to be free, and they want to own their own practice, control their own destiny, which, I mean, the the private uh, practice ownership of dental practices is still very available in all sections of the United States of America, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm going to just bluntly say, uh, yes, we do have uh, the large uh, national group practices. They are there. They exist they consist of maybe 20%, 22% of, of dentistry in America, but that means 78% of dentistry is not uh, group practice. And you have that opportunity to do that. Um, so, so now I'm going to go out and buy, you know, buy this practice. And, and they find a practice, Justin, that's doing $1.2 million, maybe you know, 900 is doctor production. That's 75000 a month. So what are you going to ask that doctor as far as his production goes if you know when he's applying for that loan or she's applying for that loan? 
Yeah, it's it's a matter at that point, and and that's one of the factors when determining whether or not you do or don't get a loan is how much can you produce and. A, a decent rule of thumb is to be able to produce 80% of what that selling doctor had produced. So, okay. And, and I use 80% because 100% sometimes just simply isn't attainable. But in this case, uh, we'd like to see that one of two things, either A, you have pay stubs to support the fact that you were getting paid enough that even conservatively, if you were getting paid 20% of production, that you can support that production. Right. Or better yet, save your production reports. And as I tell every doctor that I tell you, know, whether or not they're dental students or really young in their associateship, save your production reports. Those things, especially if you want to buy a big practice, because there's nothing better that can help a bank understand that you can step into that practice than production reports. No, you're 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 absolutely you're you're absolutely right. Now what about, um, let's talk about my doctors who are in mid-career, okay, for a second. And, um, you know, they want to they wanna expand. They want to buy a second practice or a third practice. Or they want to, uh, you know, they're just, they're killing it. And they want to uh, go out and they want to, um, you know, add another thousand square feet and, you know, three more operatories, something like that. So l- let's get into the discussion, uh, Justin, about their you know, people's credit and their financial situation. In other words, I got a doctor that's doing really well. Maybe his overhead is high or her overhead is high. And so l- let's talk, first of all, about credit. How, how, imp- I mean, it's a stupid question. How important is credit? I know it matters. I know it's a big deal. But how does the bank look at a credit score? You know, what credit scores are required? I mean, I, I know that I, I have doctors that, well, I have a 1,200 credit score. I had one tell me I had a 1,200 credit score. They swore it was 1,200. Yeah. I said, I said, okay. And I said, and, and I shoot, and I shot 63 at Pebble Beach the other day. Yeah, uh, sure. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So walk, talk about, um, yeah, I, I shot 63. I played Pebble a couple of times. Uh, I, about by the ninth hole, that's where I'm at 63. But uh, anyway, so, yeah. so, so Justin, talk about credit scores. How does that how are they calculated? How does the bank look at them? And how do they affect whether someone can get a loan with you guys? Yeah, yeah. Uh, credit's important, although I think people sometimes tend to focus too much on credit. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's clearly not important, but but credit's calculated in a, the largest part of credit is just your payment history and the amount, you know, the amounts that you owe. Um, that'll make up about 65, 70% of your credit score. The other percentages coming from new credit, length of history, and I think just just the mix of credit. So auto loans, home mortgage, credit cards. But generally speaking, credit is more of a go or no-go. Meaning as long as you have a credit score that's above, whether it's 680, 700, 720, wherever that bank deems necessary, whatever that toll gate is, then it's a pass. Then you pass that toll gate. It doesn't necessarily mean that somebody who has a 700 credit score or a 710 will have a dramatically lower chance of being approved than somebody with a 775, 780 credit score. Right. So talk about, let's talk about credit cards. I mean, number one, I know that everybody, I mean, the, the, the statistics show that the average young person coming out of college We'll end up with somewhere between five and 15 credit cards and 20, 25,000 of debt. How, what advice can we give not only to young doctors coming out of school and and in their first five years of practice, but um, experienced and established doctors who, you know, maybe they want to, maybe they want to move and buy a bigger practice. Maybe they want to expand and we want them to get that loan. How does credit card debt affect them? And, And what advice can you give them as far as, uh, you know, how many credit cards, how much credit card debt is too much. And I know every situation is different, but but comment on that. Yeah, cre- credit card debt, uh, again, in general, is something the bank doesn't necessarily like to see. Right. Um, it, it, credit card debt in general, again, just it it is almost an indicator that you're living outside your means. Now, of course, there are times where it's necessary to put something on a credit card, whether or not you get in a pinch or there's 0% interest for 12 months and you see a landscaping project and it just makes more sense to, to you know, take out 
$15,000, put it on a credit card debt, pay it off over the course of 12 months. But there's no number here. I mean, the best number is to have no credit card debt. Uh, that is, that's, you know, my advice, of course, easier said than done. Right. But if you're going to have a credit card, I'd limit it to one or two. Um, but try and keep that balance as low as possible. Absolutely make your payments on time. Right, right. So I, I want to ask another question because I know, I, I again, I've been in this industry. I've been in the profession for 35 years. And I, I've seen many times, many of the, many of the, the, the wonderful folks that work at Bank of America have worked with my clients. And, um, one of the things that, that they do is they can get what's called pre-qualified. Um, how does that work? Let's say I've got a doctor and this is something doctors, please listen to this. I think this is important. You know, you're thinking about a year from now. I want to go out and buy a, buy a building and I want to expand my practice and I want to go and build out a new office or I want to buy my first practice, I'm working at a, a place and I'm going to be ready in about a year or two. So they come to you and they say, Justin, I want to do, here's my plan. Can you help them as far as, you know, pulling their credit and saying, all right, doc, this is, this is the good, the bad and the ugly. This is what you need to do to get the loan. Do, do you do that? And yeah. Help. Yeah. Pre-qualifications in this space are a little less formal than they are in the mortgage space. So in the mortgage world, you know, you apply, the bank then tells you how big of a house, how much money you can, can you know, can, can borrow from that bank to buy a house. In this case, it's a little more informal. Um, that conversation normally revolves around an application, which covers really three things, credit, production, and liquidity. Alongside those three things will cover your monthly debts. But in general, and going through those three things, credit, we'd like to see that at 680 or above. Production, you go back to it about 80% of whatever that doctor was producing. So this is going to vary tremendously by practice. Now, right. In the case that a doctor produces $50,000 a month. Well, in that case, they can probably buy a practice that's producing uh, close to a million dollars when you back out hygiene and everything. Now, and again, providing they hit the other toll gates. The last one, liquidity, uh, that's more um, of emotional collateral for a bank. You don't want to see any of that injected to the purchase price. In general, 5% to 10% of that loan amount, we'd like to see that you have that saved in the bank. Uh, and then again, when you start going over your monthly debts, uh, this is, it, it's kind of, it stems into a different conversation, but that is all part of it. But a pre-qualification is essentially a free look that a bank can give you to give you an idea as to what you can and can't afford when it comes to buying a practice. I, I mean, I think the best thing that you can do, doctors, is to, to and we're going to let uh, Justin give his information out in a second here, but but to sit down with, a, with, with someone like Justin and say, you know, here's my plan. I mean, if you've got your practice and you know you're you're going to buy some new computers, or you're going to buy um, uh, you're going to buy a digital scanner, and that's thirty thousand dollars. I mean, you know that that is not if you've got good cash flow and decent credit, that's generally not an issue. But if you're looking at a major um, a major borrowing scenario where you're going to be borrowing hundreds of thousands, maybe over a million dollars, I mean, it, it's a it's a really really good idea that you sit down and do this. Before I let you give your information, I want to cover one more thing, uh, Justin. So uh, we know that you can go onto the internet and and you can pull your credit score. How does, if I just go on to, uh, you know, one of these companies, I'm not going to mention any names, that, that you can pull your credit score. Um, is that different than when Bank of America and Justin pulls the credit score? Talk about that for a minute. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're pulling it directly from the bureaus. Um, whether it's Credit Karma or a lot of companies have free credit monitoring services. It, it's essentially an estimate. And typically, it's about 30 days behind. But it's it's a good indicator. Uh, if you were looking for a good gauge of your credit score, that should give you a decent enough gauge. Typically, it's usually higher by about 10 to 15 points than what your credit score actually is. Uh, but that's that's I think that's a fair and a good way to start. If you're looking to get a gauge as to where your credit is, okay, but it's it's it, again it's it, it's your pulling of the credit score that really matters because you're the one mm -hmm. that's going to say because I have you ever pulled credit where the doctor says well my credit score is eight forty and you say well 
No, it's not. Does that happen sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. It, not the 840 or the 1200 in your case, but we've had people. So especially if it's so like our toll gate is 680. Now I've pulled credit to where that credit score has been 670, but they have a report, whether it's from Credit Karma or some other outfit that shows that their credit score is 690. So you'll get that variance. So if, if you're using one of those credit monitoring services, maybe that target should be anything above 720 just to play it safe. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to let Justin give his information out. I've, I've worked with the folks from Bank of America Practice Solutions. Oh my gosh, uh, 30 years, 35 years. I, I, know, I know all the all the way up to the top to their CEO. Um, and, and it's just one of the best organizations that I that I know of. And I, I just have a great relationship with all the people at B of A. So uh, Justin, if, if, if someone wants to get a hold of you and they want to just have a conversation about what their goals and dreams are and how you can help them get there, how, how, how can someone, what's the best way to, for them to get a hold of you? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm more than happy to have any sort of conversation, whether you're a student, uh, aspiring dentist or an associate, or you own a practice. And just like you said, you, you're looking to expand because the financing needs and requirements for all those people are going to be dramatically different. But uh, so my cell phone, you can call my cell phone is area code 512-590-2923. Again, that's 512-590-2923. Um, my email, my name will probably be in the podcast, but it's justin.clingshern. And you can probably refer to the podcast notes but it's justin.clingshern at com. So yeah. that's at com. That's right. And um, again, you know, the, these folks are very, very good at what they do. They know, you know, they, I mean, and I've worked with many of their reps and, and they'll, they'll say, you know, Art, this is what we need. Can you talk to the doctor? Let's look at their taxes. Let's look at this and, and what have you. Um, you know, th- these guys know what they're doing. They're professionals and they, they care deeply about their clients. That, that's been obvious to me for years and years and years. Um, so I want to get into the buying of a practice for a second, which is kind of what your wheelhouse is right now. And I know that there's a uh, a debt coverage ratio that you guys work with, Justin. Uh, it, it's it's I don't I never remember from bank to bank one hundred and twenty percent, hundred twenty five percent. Which which one do you guys work with generally? Yeah, so it's 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 the target is a one point two. Okay, for every dollar in debt you have, you're making a dollar twenty. So let's walk through that formula. So I have a I have a practice. Let's say that my that practice I bring to you. I want to buy it. It's grossing a million dollars a year, and it's netting three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. All right. Um, walk me through a simple, you know, we're, we're not going to use an Excel spreadsheet here. We're on a, we're on audio, not video. Yeah, people are driving. People yeah. are driving and they're thinking and their heads explode when they do numbers uh, sometimes. And so how does that work? I mean, walk me through the basic sure. calculation. So this, this should hopefully tie everything together because this goes back to the pre-qualification. I mentioned monthly debts and this is where this comes in. And, and this is where the pre-qualification gets much more fluid relative to the type of practice that you're buying. So in Art's example, you got a million-dollar practice. The net cash flow is $350,000. That means that that doctor that had owned that practice had essentially been making $350,000, all things being equal. Um, that three fifty dollars comes from line items on the tax return, profit, the net, see it as all add backs, but that is the money that is coming out of that practice. What we want to do is find out whether or not when you step into that practice and you're then making that amount of money, $350,000, can that cover all of your debts on an annual basis, including the debt that you'll have to make as far as payments go to us? So let's assume 350, we're going to use that as the numerator and the denominator all of your annual debts, that's your mortgage loan on an annual basis, your car loan, your student loans, any credit card debt that you have to pay. Um, if you co-signed or if you have a rental property, that annual payment, along with the payment back to us. How about taxes? Uh, is, so yeah, we'll, we'll take taxes out of that as well. So whether or not that 350 was pre or post-tax, if it was pre-tax, we'll have to add the taxes in. Right. Um, so 
taxes on $350,000, depending on where you live, is probably close to seventy-five, eighty, $90,000. Now, in this case, if we were to just say those numbers, so what I just went over, were three hundred thousand dollars, right? Because this will probably be pretty close. It's pretty close. Yeah, divide three hundred is going to get you to one point one six. Ooh, you're killing me, man! Come on, right, right, right. Now, all things being equal, that's probably okay. Really, above one point one five should be okay, so long as we're hitting those other toll gates, credit, liquidity, production, um, but. Let's lower that number. Let's let's assume, you know, instead of three hundred, so three hundred fifty thousand dollars divided by three hundred thousand dollars is again one point one six. Let's assume instead of um, buying that really nice car, you bought a car, and the payment instead of being twelve hundred dollars was four hundred dollars. Now that's eight hundred dollars a month that you're saving over the course of a year. That's close to about ten thousand dollars. So instead of dividing by 300, you're now dividing by 290, and you're at a 1.2. So you can see then how your debts, uh, whether or not it's your student loan debt that you're paying on, your car debt, your mortgage debt, and the amount that you owe every month. So your payment on those debts dramatically affect your chances of getting approved for a practice. Right. Now, now this is interesting, too, because I get this as a broker, as a dental practice broker all the time. Well, Bank of America didn't approve my loan or so-and-so didn't approve my loan. And so therefore, that practice isn't worth what you're asking. That's not necessarily true. It just means that under the bank's parameters and and rules of how they decide how they're going to loan money, that the math just doesn't work for the bank. It doesn't mean the practice isn't worthwhile. Do you get into that conversation every so often? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one doctor, so two doctors can apply for the same practice. Um, and, and one gets approved, one gets declined, but it has really nothing to do with the practice. It has to do with the doctor and his or her credit situation or monthly debts. Um, conversely, what you do have is you'll have a doctor who comes out of school with a lot of debt and they have so much debt they want to buy a small practice because they couldn't even think about acquiring even more debt. So they have $450,000 of student loan debt. They signed on a mortgage for $550,000. It's a million dollars in debt. They want to buy a practice for closer to $300,000. But the reality is the net cash flow on a practice that's priced at $300,000 is probably close to about $100,000. Right. And that $100,000 cannot service that doctor's debt load. That doctor who has a high mortgage those high student loans is almost, they want to enter into practice ownership. They'll have to buy a big enough practice to pay for those debts. So in that case, again, counterintuitively, the only practice they can oftentimes afford is a bigger practice, right? One producing more than a million dollars at times. Now, now we run into this sometimes where a doctor wants to buy a smaller practice and the smaller practices, like you just said, are harder to finance because the cash flow is not there. So do, do you allow a doctor to maybe buy a practice? Maybe he or she is going to work in it for three days a week and then they work as an associate for a couple of other days to supplement that? Can can that work? Yeah. Yeah. In, in those cases, we do have a product. It's called the Jumpstart. Um, it, we'll, we'll typically go $50,000 per operatory. There are, of course, other requirements around that product, but that's built. It's more like a quasi startup slash transition to where the idea is that you you may or may not be working on the side as you build up this practice. But the repayment plan, much like a startup, is very forgiving. So you have over a year's worth of interest only payments as you get revenues up to where you can actually pay for your debts. Okay. All right, let's talk. I want to finish up with the practice acquisition part of this. So, um, you require obviously that there be an office lease in order for if the doctor's not buying or owning the building, um, that there be an office lease. How does that all come into all of this? Yeah, the, the lease is critically important. It, it, it can absolutely, uh, you know, kill a deal with a landlord that just isn't budging on one thing or another. Yep. Our requirement. <laughs> Is in in this this has been coming up uh, more often now than 
in the, in the past. But our our one requirement, I mean, we it has to be within, you know, so essentially the there's a new rental rate that's that's moving forward. So say you're buying a practice and you have to renegotiate that lease. Clearly, that new lease payment would affect the net cash flow. So we have to adjust for that. So if the lease rate doubles, that may squeeze the cash flow quite a bit. But the big takeaway is that you want to have at least five years of options, meaning you have the ability to stay in that space for at least five years after obtaining that loan. The bank wants to make sure that the landlord doesn't have the ability to, after you close or, or two years when you, you know, you've been open for two years, that they say, hey, look, I'm going to sell this property, get out. Or I can rent it to a chiropractor or an accountant uh, and, and double the rent. Now, that may or may not be true, but um, uh, yeah, landlords, as you and I both know, Justin, and you know, you're, you're, you're in this space, I'm in this space, uh, they're always the wild card because we, we can't control what they do. They're going to do what they're going to do, and we just have to hope for the best with a landlord. And you know, that's a whole other conversation that we've, we've had on this, uh, on, on this podcast. So we need, a, we need a lease. We need a purchase and sales agreement. What about, what about insurances? How does that work? Do, does, do the banks generally require life and disability insurance uh, for a loan? Yeah, so we don't under a million bucks. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Again, in general. Now, banks oftentimes do. Uh, over a million dollars is the case. Uh, banks are going to vary on their insurance requirements big time. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's, that's due to a number of other factors. But in general, expect the bank to want to collateralize or want to have as an assignment, they want to be in a collateral assignee to your insurance policy. If your loan's under a million dollars um, with us, not too big of a worry. Okay. All right, let's let's talk a little anything else about the acquisition of a of a practice that we we want to give advice to our doctors about like all right, you're going to buy a practice in the next 1 or 2 or 3 years, you should do this. We talked about making sure your credit is good, trying to get your credit card debt down, your student loan. Any anything else that you see a, as a roadblock that we can give advice to our our listeners and say you need to do this before you go and apply for a loan to buy a practice. Save your define what you want. So if that's a big practice, understand that you're gonna we'll need to see production reports showing a decent amount of production. So define what you want. If it's a bigger practice, if it's any practice, save your production reports. Save money. Um, keep credit card debt down. Refrain from buying that expensive house or expensive car. Wait until you after practice ownership to do something like that. Um, in, in, you know, in general, connect with a mentor or connect with people that have done it before because they've made some of those same mistakes that, you know, that, that potentially you will make. So that's my advice just for somebody looking to buy a practice. Okay. Let, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, like expanding a practice. I know that's not your space right now, but you've been involved in it. Um, so if someone wants to expand a practice or just build one out from scratch. One of the things that's always been amazing to me, Justin, is Bank of America will, or all the banks, not not just you guys, they will, you know, you have the, the practice purchase, it's a million dollars, you have your 1.2 debt ratio coverage, okay? And if it doesn't cover it, you won't make the loan. Okay, but if I want to build out a practice from scratch with brand new equipment and brand new, you know, drywall and carpet and all this stuff and no track record and no revenues, it doesn't seem like it's as hard. Am I dreaming or has that changed or how does yeah, that work? It's, so that's a, that's a good question. And that comes up all the time when you have a practice that's underperforming, that's for sale for $400,000 or $500,000. And the idea there is, well, you've approved me for a startup loan. Why can't I buy this? I mean, I should be able to buy anything I want, right? It's, it's certainly better than a startup because I'm going to have to go through the rigmarole of starting up a practice and hiring people. Um, it's, it's, it's really because we have a product, right? That product is a startup product and we lend based on projections. So in your first two years, we can really see what a startup produces and collects in their net margins. So, so we know we can back into then uh, a, a relative you know, success rate of a startup. Versus when you buy a smaller practice, it's a little bit 
harder. It's harder to define that because those vary tremendously. And on top of that, you're stepping into something that for some reason or another wasn't working. Uh, whether or not the systems weren't set up correctly or the right people weren't hired, some of those practices are, for lack of a better word, broken, right? Right. You're stepping into a broken practice. And to go into a practice and to think that you're going to cut benefits and wages from day one is crazy, right? Will you be able to save on supplies and lab expenses? Sure. Will you be able to grow the practice? Probably. But again, now we're, we're almost stepping into this, this demographic and competition arena. So, so why was that doctor unable to perform? You know, was it, was it something outside of their control? That confounding variable for a bank is a little tough to wrap their arms around versus if you're starting up a practice, we can lean into the fact that, look, across the nation, this happens. This is what we can expect. It, it's a little more predictable counterintuitively. So does the dentist, Justin, need to actually prepare a business plan for you or do you give him a form and say, Give me your, you know, close your eyes and make a projection of what you think you're going to do. How does that work? Yeah, they don't need to. I always recommend that they do do it. I, I, I would say like 5 to 10% of dentists actually prepare business plans when starting up or buying a practice, which, which kind of blows my mind. I mean, if you're looking to, you know, you're an entrepreneur, the, one of the first things you do is you you, you know, sketch out a business plan, at least a wireframe of one. Um, we don't require it. All we require is a two-page application and a supplemental form to really start your first practice. And of course, two years of tax returns. And when you're buying a practice, we don't require one either. Now we will have, and we'll set you up uh, on a phone call with an underwriter and you'll go over your plans with that underwriter. But, but that is as far as we'll dig into your business plan. Okay. Now let's talk for a second. I'm going to jump back into the acquisition mode. Doctors want to acquire more than one practice. Okay. They want to get a second. They want to get a third. They want to build an empire. I mean, I I have doctors that say, well, I want to own, I've had doctors who've called me. I want to own 50 practices in two years. I go, you want to own 50 practices within two? Yeah, I can do this. I've seen other people. I can do this. Uh, I go, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I can do what Patrick Ma- Patrick Mahomes did yesterday. Yeah, exactly. I can do that. Sure, yeah, I right. I can yeah, move like yeah. he does, right? But l- let's talk about for someone who wants to uh, acquire multiple practices. I mean, I know for a fact that the banks, and I'm going to generalize all the banks. I don't know of any bank that will go out and will finance your 12th, 13th, 15th practice purchase. I don't think that's out there, right? So we, we actually have a division that does that. You do? Um, yeah, we do. We do. Okay. It's, it's for the right doctor because in this middle market, this between, let's say, five to 15 or 20 practices, it's a tough space when right. it comes to financing. Um, and Th- that's what I mean. It's very new. Right. It's, 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 it's newer. Now, for the right doctor uh, that, that has systems in place that meets all of our toll gates, we will absolutely open up that box. Okay. Uh, we have relationships, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 locations. Uh, but it's normally for the doctor that is relatively more conservative. Um, I'm trying to, to, you know, think of the best way to phrase that. But ultimately, to go back to your question, as far as how you finance multiple practices. So you bought one, you're looking to buy another, buy a third, buy a fourth. Right. We'll start with one. Yeah. And then define how you're going to get to the next one. So when are you going to know? Don't just see the, you know, shiny ball in the air and you, you need to grab it. So you buy one practice and six months later you you can't resist this opportunity. So you buy it. Well, you might not be ready. Your right. first practice might not be sustainable to the point where you can actually buy that second one. Take a step back, understand what metrics are you in practice. I know you had the dental intel guy on the, uh, on the podcast. But understand where your practice is and where you'd like to get to before buying that second one. What does the bank look for? Just to have that strategy of growing. And typically, once you are and you do have some healthy systems in place, 
growing to one practice a year isn't out of the question. I mean, that is something that that, that you know I'm doing today. We're doing today. Right. Uh, Twenty practices in a scope of or span of three years is much more difficult for a bank to do because at that point it just gets a little bit out of control. Right. So, so we've got to have a, so you have a doctor that has a plan say, I want to own 10 practices and you're going to tell them, Justin, you're going to say, you know, doc, I think over five years or seven years, that's a doable plan. I think that works. Okay. And so you can help them with that, right? I mean, will you actually sit down and map out a, a, a plan as to how to do this for them, fi- at least from the financing side? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we have our, you know, we have our rules, right? We have our tool gates um, when it comes to multi-practice ownership. And absolutely. I mean, I'll sit down with somebody and go over their plan. I think, I think the first question that you don't want to miss is why, right? If you're looking to capitalize on the EBITDAs that the DSOs are paying, or is it that, because, because managing 10 practices is not like managing one or two practices. Nope. It's it's it is an enterprise at that point. You've got to have an infrastructure. Yep. Yeah, yep. I mean, you've got to have a CFO. You've got to have a a COO. You've got to have HR. You. I mean, it it starts getting. Uh, yeah, your job isn't a dentist at that point. No. Like you have to be okay with with a different job. And I think asking yourself why do you want to get there? Why? Um, is probably the first flush out method before you step into something like that uh, is to avoid looking back after, you know, seven years and you've gotten to that point. You're like, Oh my God, I can't, I was having much more fun with one or two. (laughs) (laughs) I I never see my wife or my husband anymore. Yeah, exactly. So what about Justin, if I want to, if I have a current location and I see an opportunity in a city uh, 20 miles away. Um, and, and I want to open a second practice and maybe I have a buddy from dental school or a, a great associate that I want to give an opportunity to run his or her own office, but we'll be partners. How did, how does that work? So not, we're not talking about buying. Now we're talking about, I own a really good profitable location and I want to go open in a second location in a different city. How does that work with the bank? Do you want to, so you want to start off your second location? Yes, sir. DeNovo? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. And that, that steps into established doctor lending then. And in that case, let's assume, so I'm going to, I'm going to map out, I'm going to take from your example and, and try and detail out a little bit more, but let's assume you're doing a million dollars in collections in your practice today and you owe $200,000, Right. Right. Now, we can lend you typically up to, I mean, we'll go up to 100% of revenue, but let's just call it 90%. So a million dollars, we can lend you up to $900,000, providing the debt can be serviced by your cash flow and you're meeting all of those other requirements in general. So you already owe us $200,000 in this case, and you want to borrow some money for the new office. Well, in this case, we can go up to $900,000 in debt to you. You already owe 200. The difference there is 700. So again, theoretically, so long as you pass all of the other requirements and the net cash flow can service the debt of that new practice, we can lend you $700,000 up to, to start up that practice. Which is going to open most locations in the United States. 700,000 is plenty to open a dental office. That's yeah. Yeah. You can do it for less. The only thing that's probably, I guess, unrealistic about that example is that a million dollar practice oftentimes doesn't have just $200,000 worth of debt. Right. A million dollar practice, let's assume you started it up, will have closer to $450,000 just debt attached to it. So that number is probably closer to 500, but even at 500, you can open a satellite location uh, for that associate. Right. So this is really important too. So doctors, if you're thinking about a second location, all right, do not go out and sign an office lease until you talk to Justin, right? You're the first one they've got to talk to because yeah. you know if 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 they don't have the credit or they don't have the cash flow or they don't have the ability to borrow that second uh, to, to borrow for the second location and they sign that lease they're up the creek 
Oh gosh. Have, have you ever yeah, seen that happen where a doctor will sign a lease and then say, Oh, well, I, I, I didn't think it was gonna be a problem. Oops. Have you seen that? Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's happened before. And one of two things happened. Both are not good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> either a, they have to pay to get out of that lease a tremendous amount of money right? or sublease it themselves, right? Just, just, they have to deal with the landlord or B they have to go. And, and there are ways to get money when you're a doctor looking to grow outside of the scope that a normal bank or a specialty lender would allow. And those banks charge really, really high interest rates, 10%, 11%, 12%. So we've seen that happen too, where a doctor that, that wouldn't otherwise be able to get approved or hadn't been approved by a, you know, a healthcare lender has to seek out alternative means of financing. And that can get, I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, predatory. So, yeah. so, so yeah. And in one thing I'll say too, to what, you know, we're talking about now, we're talking about additional financing after your first and what's key when making your first decision. Okay. I want to go with this bank. To, to, to buy my first practice or start at my first practice, just make sure that that bank providing you want financing in the future or you need more money, whether or not you expand or if you know in five to 10 years you want to relocate, just ask the question at the front, can this bank finance your additional needs? Right. Because it's too often that when you go to buy your first practice, you go with a local bank and underwriting a dental transaction um, it isn't that difficult. It, it becomes more complex as you look to do other things, even if that other thing is simply relocating your first practice. A lot of lenders don't understand really how to do that. So just understand that when you make your first decision, that you want to go with a lender that can provide additional financing for future growth. That's right. And that that's a, that's a great way to put a bow on this uh, Justin, obviously, ladies and gentlemen, I think the whole thing that I would like to see you all take away from this podcast and, and Justin, you're, you're, you're spot on on all of your advice. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's really important that you sit down with someone like Justin uh, and just say, you know, in the next five years, here's my plans. If you're going to buy a practice and you're going to be in that practice location for 30 years, and like I said, you're going to buy a piece of equipment here, a piece of equipment there. It's not as critical. But if you have plans of like buying a building uh, or you want to open a second or third location or you want to buy multiple locations, before you do anything, before you think about anything, sit down with someone like Justin and, and, and say, Justin, this is what I want to do. What do I need to do to get the money? Because, you know, we can get a landlord to give you a lease. Uh, you, you might have to throw up 10 times when you deal with them, but they'll give you a lease, okay? And you know you're a good dentist, and if you want to find associates, there are associates out there, but but you don't have control over the money. So anyway, Justin, before we go, one more time, give out your contact information so folks can get a hold of you. They have a question. Yep, yep. So again, my cell phone is uh, 512-590-2923. And my email is just my first name dot last name at B-O-F-A dot com. Uh, that's Justin dot Klingshern at B-O-F-A dot com. And again, that will be in the in the notes of for our show on our website. So ladies and gentlemen, again, if you want to get a hold of me at my office in Tustin, the number is 714-505-9000. Uh, email me at artwiederman at gmail.com. Go to our website, www.hmwccpa.com. And I did not mention this earlier. Um, if you are not working with a dental-specific CPA anywhere in the United States, uh, the Academy of Dental CPAs is my mothership, 24 CPA firms across the United States that represent over 9,000 dentists, the best group of men and women I have ever, ever met. Um, go to our website at www.adcpa.org. Click on the on the map and uh, look for the uh, member in your area. I know that the Academy of Dental CPAs has a great relationship uh, with Bank of America and that uh, all of our members work with the different representatives in different parts of the United States. And um, folks, if you're not working with a dental-specific CPA, uh, you will be very, very glad if you start doing that. 
Justin, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Great information today for our doctors who want to who want to expand and grow their their practice. Any final comments? No, no. Thanks for having me, man. It's it's been fun, and I appreciate you having me on. Well, and welcome to Southern California. And by the way, it does stay warm here most of the year. Uh, people say yeah. it gets cold when it's fifty degrees. I don't say that to my friends in Minneapolis and Boston and. Yeah. Uh, Augusta, Maine, and things like that. But anyway, so ladies and gentlemen, that is it for this edition of the Art of Dental Finance. Please continue listening. Please tell your friends about the podcast. Um, write a review about our podcast. And again, subscribe to it. You can do it through iTunes or on your Android. And then you'll get every edition, which is published every Wednesday morning. Uh, this one will more than likely go up sometime in mid to late February of 2020. So again, that's it. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 